perception is not reality. So two people can look at the exact same thing and see something different. We don't have terrain without perception. We don't have, you know, snowpack without perception. We don't have this stuff unless it's filtered through our lenses. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. This is Dr. Sarah Boylan, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Have you not heard about Gordini? Gordini has been redefining the cold weather experience through outdoor gear and glove innovation for more than 66 years. Based in Vermont, family run, and independently owned, Gordini has focused on the same mission since its founding in 1956, to keep you outside longer. From introducing the first ever down and leather ski mitts, to launching the industry's first dual layer ski sock, Gordini believes that the future is in our hands, and now, our feet. See what drives their products and their passions at Gordini.com. Well, October is ticking away, and snow is already in the high country of many locales, with more in the forecast this week. Some see snow, others see future depth or. No matter what your perspective is, the seasons are changing, and I, for one, am excited for winter. We're in the midst of the snow and avalanche workshop season, and if you are in the area, be sure not to miss the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop, Seesaw, that is taking place this Friday, October 27th at 8 a.m. at the Riverwalk Center in Breckenridge, Colorado. Sure to be a good time. Support for this episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast comes from Beacon Guidebooks. Beacon has a library of 16 ski atlas guidebooks and 18 backcountry ski topo maps across five states, and they're growing. Beacon recently released the second edition of their popular field guide for avalanche search and rescue. What if the worst case scenario happens to you? The reality is, is that most of us cannot remember everything from all the classes and clinics we've attended. So this book is meant to help you be a valuable member of the team, whether you're a pro on a large scale rescue or a regular old skier in a group of three. The author, Alexis Alloway, has done the heavy lifting to provide an easy-to-read and highly curated quick reference tool that includes leadership and risk management reviews, search strategies, probing and shoveling methods, medical protocols, patient packaging and rigging diagrams, quick reference cards, and much, much more. This season, you can go to beaconguidebooks.com to take advantage of 25% off of orders of six or more copies for your patrol, rescue team, or guiding team. Enter the code AVSAR, that's A-V-S-A-R, to take advantage of their team discount for a book that is built to last. You can also reach out to them personally at orders at beaconguidebooks.com. If you want to hear a little bit more about this book, you can go back and listen to our episode with Alexis on episode 6.2. I don't know about you all, but for me, one of the coolest parts of this lifelong journey of learning about snow and avalanches is just how many lenses there are to look through to this beautiful and yet terrifying phenomenon. There are formation dynamics, fracture mechanics, weather and snowpack modeling, data and instrumentation, forecasting and hazard communication, and more. And again, depending on your perspective, We often find ourselves at the center of it all, trying to make some sense of all of the inputs of the data we gather, trying to better understand our motivations and blind spots, improve our communication, and come home safe from a day of work or play. I'm happy to be joined on today's episode by Dr. Sarah Boylan. 
Sarah is fascinated by the way our brains work for us or against us to lead us down certain paths in the backcountry. She is a psychologist by trade and finds joy and peace through spending time in the mountains on her feet, skis, or snow machine. We're about to dive into a great chat about where we are and where we ought to be headed in our understanding of what is at play within our minds when making some pretty heavy choices in the winter backcountry environment. Here we go, dropping in with Dr. Sarah Boylan. All right, I'm thrilled to be in the presence of Sarah Boylan today, and welcome to the show, Sarah. Sarah's a clinical and forensic psychologist and founder of Sweetgrass Psychological Services in Whitefish, Montana. She's an avid backcountry telemark skier and avid mountaineer as well. Loves to explore the mountains around her home in the Flathead Valley. She's also on the board of directors of She Jumps. And Sarah's kind of one of the great leaders in helping us understand how our minds are involved in in sense-making and decision-making in the backcountry. Um, thrilled to have you here, Sarah. Welcome. Thanks so much. It's really an honor to be here with you. Sarah's hoping you could briefly introduce yourself and talk about kind of how you got into the realm of psychology and, you know, how that intertwines with some of your passions of spending time in the mountains. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I think as an introvert, you sort of have two options when it comes to humans. One is to sort of like stay away from them and the other is to engage with them quietly and fade into the background and just observe and try to understand. And I've always been fascinated by the human condition. So psychology was just such a natural fit for me. I have always been, well, that's not true. I grew up just outside New York City. So I was not always outdoorsy, but moved to Montana during college and really just fell in love with this whole mountain thing. And when I started grad school, I decided to do my doctoral research on how we could use rock climbing to have a positive impact on like women's sense of hope and courage. And so I've sort of always been looking for ways to like, I mean, let's be honest, like be outside more instead of like in a library. Um, and as I've grown, I just see so many opportunities. And I think the avalanche world, we, we have a lot of opportunities for psychology to enter the fray and hopefully make some positive impacts. Without the human element, we wouldn't have avalanche accidents, right? That that unfortunately either harm or take the lives of, of people that are recreating or living near avalanche terrain. Um, and so we're going to dive in a little bit more today into what's been broadly termed as as human factors and the the factors that influence our perception of our surroundings and also the the factors that influence ultimately the decision to enter avalanche terrain or engage in that avalanche terrain. Um, and of course, there's so many other factors at play, obviously snowpack, terrain, and weather. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to our involvement with those factors that that influence our sense-making and decision-making. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a story about your personal experience where some of these factors were at play and some of the lessons that you teased out of that experience. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and I have to say, you know, as a psychologist, I'm used to asking the questions. So I'm like, oh, I'm listening, I'm listening. And then you ask a question, I'm like, oh. So I'm going to do my best not to turn everything back on you today uh, as a classic psychologist would. <laughs> Um, so I, I first just want to say, you know, I, I, I sort of like get a little nitpicky about semantics. And one of the things that really troubles me is that we say terrain, period, weather, period, snowpack, period, but then it's like the human factor. And it's like, human period, you know, like, this is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It influences everything. And similarly, I think that's been my personal experience. Like I, it's so hard for me to tease it out, you know, and I think back to a specific incident. Um, a couple winters ago, we were 
up in the Whitefish Range, some friends and I had ridden our snowmobiles into a zone that I had not been to in the winter. And we were heading out for, you know, a kind of exploratory fun mission on a huge storm day. And Whitefish has had this history recently of getting like rain in the winter, uh, which is like not really the thing we're looking for. And so seeing the snowfall was very exciting. And, you know, it was the kind of snowfall that you get back to your sled at the end of the day and there's 10 inches, you know, piled up. So this was really exciting. And, you know, it was windy, it was cold. We had our hoods up. We were sort of trudging through the snow and one of us had been there before, but we had poor visibility, so it was really just unclear. And it was kind of one of those things like, all right, we're going to ski this line. And then we get up there, and we're like, that line is way too thick with trees. Um, we're not going to ski that line. Let's bump down the ridge, bump down the ridge, bump down the ridge. And next thing you know, we're st- skiing something a little steeper than we had intended. And, you know, it was like you take out your phone to look at the map. There's so much snowfall, you can't really see the screen. And It was just like a series of events that led to this really small, inconsequential avalanche going that, you know, really had very little impact other than to really wake us up and have us thinking. And in hindsight, I found myself being like, man, I can't even sort of like identify a thing that happened. It was like so many things. And that experience really shifted me, I think, away from this concept of decision-making. Because decision-making, it it sort of makes it sound like, okay, we're going to get up there, and then we're going to make a decision. And it's not one decision. It's like a countless number of decisions that build, and some of them, you're most of them, you're not even conscious of. And everyone else is making decisions. And So I started to really just rethink this idea and um, start to understand that it's more this interactive growing process that unfolds throughout the day and that it's our perception and our personalities and our situational factors that have a huge influence. Um, And largely, we're not even aware it's happening. So I started thinking like, gosh, this isn't, you know, we're not, we're not barking up the right right tree. We we really need to think about things um, in a different way. And so, you know, that avalanche triangle, which you sort of referenced in your intro to this question, it's almost like I started to think like terrain, like we don't have terrain without perception. We don't have, you know, snowpack without perception, we don't have this stuff unless it's filtered through our lenses. Yeah, so here we are, you know, I, I sort of walked away from that and I was like, I'm a human factor. <laughs> like, There's no like human factor in quotation marks that exists outside of me that I can kind of wrap my head around. It's like, it's me um, and it's you and it's all of us. We are just walking, talking, skiing, riding human factors. Yeah, it's... it's uh... <laughs> Sometimes it can be a bit hard to wrap our minds around this, right? And and I think you are such a great person to talk to because you think about how we think about things and how we perceive things and how our brains work. Maybe you could provide us with a, a quick history lesson on some of the research in this field. Um, you know, I think it was kind of widely started to be accepted when Dr. Ian McCammon kind of kicked things off in the early 2000s in identifying some heuristic traps and looking at actual actual data from avalanche accidents to identify some common themes in, in the factors within our sense-making and decision-making. What, it, what were your thoughts when that research came out and, and kind of like maybe bring us up to speed of what's happened since then. Yeah, so I I think the general story is like, what's happened since then? Like, not much, you know? Like, Ian did this incredible push and really worked hard to get this on the map and and for his own, you know, gains too, like to really understand this stuff in a different way. And I don't think as a field we have done him his work justice. I don't, I don't feel as if we have taken it where it deserves to be in 23 years, you know, since then. Um, 
What I think has happened instead is that everyone has sort of started with this idea of facets. And I know like every time, you know, there's like a thing, like every time somebody utters the word facets in an avalanche class, you know, Ian loses some hair or something like that. Like it really, I think he winces about this, that this is still what we're teaching and still what we're talking about. And yet it is. And there's a number of folks, you know, who have developed their own systems and who have taken this and really kind of even worked out their own frameworks or their own, you know, ways of talking about it to students or, you know, checking on it in themselves. But we don't have a widespread consensus of, okay, this is what sense-making is and this is how we're understanding it and how we're approaching it and how we're doing this as a field. And I think that's been at a great disservice in a few ways. The biggest one is that it means that your avalanche education is only good as your teacher's conceptualization of the human factor. It also means that Um, we're not able to research it. We're not able to study it. You know, we don't know, you know, how does the avulator work? Like, how does this conceptual conceptual framework work? Um, How effective is the area education? Like, we just don't know because everybody's doing different things. And if there's something that works, I feel like we should all know about it and we should all be using it. And, you know, there's a, a lot of researchers will say, like, if there was a magic bullet, we would all know, like, we would have all figured it out. And yet, we haven't. And so I think we need to really put some more effort into this. And that was sort of the the plea that I made in my last TAR article. Um, Like, let's get going. Let's take this to the next level. Yeah, and you kind of propose that we should be working towards some sort of framework for sense making, right? And and so in that article, you know, you reference some some other researchers, Dr. Daniel Kahneman, um, and others that essentially are saying just acknowledging that this is at play isn't enough. And I think that's what happens in a lot of avalanche courses in, in education is is that it's acknowledged and then there aren't any tools or there are few tools and they're not really widely accepted um, to deal with this stuff. And so, you know, um, I think we're going to get into maybe some tools later on in the conversation. But w- like what is in your mind, what does this look like? What is the what does this framework look like? I guess I'd say first off. We need to rewind and go a little bit further up the chain. So if decision-making is this end result, theoretically, like what data is going into our system to help us make that decision? And what we know from huge amounts of literature out there about perception is that we're pretty bad actually at perceiving the natural environment or or really anything as it is. And I joke when I give my presentations at SAWS, you know, like if you've ever been in an argument with your spouse or with your roommate and something comes out of their mouth and you say, I knew you were going to say that, that's actually confirmation bias, right? That's like a perceptual distortion. Um, A, because we actually can't predict the future, and B, because um, the fact that they said something you expected to be there really suggests that's more about you than about them, right? We see the world not as it is, but as we are. And so um, to ignore everything that leads up to this quote-unquote decision that happens is really a failure. And so our conceptual framework really needs to zoom out to like the 30,000 foot level. We need to be teaching people about their perceptual failures. And then additionally, we need to teach people a sense-making strategy that is circular. So it's not that we get gather some data, we generate a hypothesis, and then we make a decision. It's that we gather data poorly. We evaluate that data. We kind of think about, all right, what might work here? We try something out and then we repeat the whole process again. And I think actually this is where I think 
um, motorized users probably have a leg up on us because they are making decisions faster and they are making sense of their environment all the time. You know, they move through so much more avalanche terrain than a skier can. They are covering greater ground and they are processing information in a profoundly, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing, right, how much they have to take in and make sense of it as they're going. And, um, you know, we tend to think like, okay, so you're going to get up to the ridge and then you're going to make a choice. And it's like the snowmobiler has been on avalanche terrain this whole time. So I just think we need to broaden our horizons and expand our understanding of how humans impact every aspect of that triangle, and then equip people with some tools to intervene every step of the way. You know, like we're not even teaching communication in Rec 1, like really, you know, and uh, that's a real loss. So I think our conceptual framework really needs to address how the human being, you know, condition impacts everything we do when it comes to backcountry travel or travel and avalanche terrain. And then from there, we have to provide people with interventions every step of the way. And I realize that sounds like a ton of work. Like I was just at Wysaw this last weekend and, you know, over dinner, there's seven people at the table with seven different ideas about how we should be teaching rec courses, you know, and whether or not we should be teaching pit digging with the emphasis we are or more emphasis or less like we really don't agree on much as a field really um so i get this is controversial and going to be tough to pull off but if we really want to equip people to do better we have to do better on the on the back end well sarah let's try and create some common language and and define some terms a little bit because there's there's a lot of terms floating around and acronyms, mnemonics. And, and um, I was hoping you could just kind of like run through some of some of the definitions in your mind of, of what, you know, what is perception? What are heuristic traps? What is cognitive bias? What, what is sense-making? This is kind of a, maybe a newer term to many of us, this sense-making. And, and so um, maybe just do your best at, at defining some of these terms for us. Yeah. So the first one, we'll start with human factor and, you know, watch out a question's coming your way. I'm going to turn the tables in a second. So my human factor, like my radio name, you know, just full, full transparency is untucked chaos. And I have yet to like figure out, I've mastered a lot of things in my life. I've yet to figure out how to manage all my hoods and zippers, you know, so there's always like a hood and a braid sticking one way or another. And kind of just grew into the name Untucked Chaos. And it's it's also helpful because I tend to be pretty uh, impulsive. And I think my partner should know that about me. So my human factor is like, yeah, I'm carrying dessert that I'm going to share with everybody. I'm also really bullheaded about getting to the summit of anything, however small or however huge. And I'm also a little chaotic and hard to wrangle. And so I guess, like, what's your human factor? Like if you were to say it in a few words. Well, I think, uh, well, there's a lot there, but (laughs) in a few (laughs) words, I, I often see what I want to see. Um, and I am driven by uh, objectives, right. And, And, and I will continue towards those objectives, even in the, in the midst of sometimes obvious clues. Um, and so I think that's that's the biggest kind of personal red flag that I have. Um, and, and when that happens, I start to listen less to my partners and get into a convincing mode. Yeah, feel that. I can resonate with that. And I think, you know, that means you and I probably shouldn't go out together if there's like a big objective and risky conditions, right? Like, and or we should bring a neutral party who's loud and obnoxious and can shut us both down, you know, like, and so I think when we think of human factors, I think we need to stop with the facets and just focus on ourselves and focus on our partners. Like, what's your human factor? And I, you know, I encourage every listener to this podcast to like, take a minute and ask your partners, like, what's my human factor or factors? Um, okay, and then kind of get it back to your question, you know, 
I think heuristic traps and cognitive biases are are somewhat synonymous. Um, so cognitive bias, you know, we have thousands of bits of information coming at us any moment of any day. What does your shirt feel like on your skin? Like you didn't notice what that felt like till I said it, right? Um, if you're driving as you're listening to this podcast, I mean, there's a lot of information coming at you and you're not paying attention to all of it. So our brain uses these shortcuts, these really important shortcuts to filter out anything that it thinks is unimportant, right? And then to, you know, kind of make sense of and present us with in our conscious awareness, anything that seems relevant. So when you say, I see what I want to see, like, it's really true. Like, that's really what's happening. And so these shortcuts enable us to get out of the house in the morning. Like, imagine if you actually noticed literally everything that you were sensing in a moment, like, it'd be impossible, you know? So these, 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 biases, these shortcuts are essential. They become traps when our brain is not actually pulling to conscious awareness the things we actually need to make a good decision, right? And, uh, you know, let's say you want to believe that the temperature is a certain, you know, hasn't changed throughout the day. And your partner's like, did you notice that it got colder? And you sort of are like, no, I didn't notice that at all, right? Like, and this is where it becomes a trap. This is where it falls into that heuristic trap kind of piece. And there's all sorts of versions of it. There's this cognitive bias codex available on the internet that's this clickable diagram of every single cognitive bias that has been researched. And there's a bunch on there, and you can spend your whole rainy day looking at them. And um, and there are probably ones we haven't even identified yet. And so I think it's important that we all understand them and we all understand that we are victim to them. I think sometimes it can be easy to be like, well, not me. I see things as they are. So next up, we can talk about perception. So if stimulus is the thing, so that's the tree falling in the forest, perception is the processing or sense making of the thing, the sound that it makes, right? So you can't perceive something that you don't have a sensation of, but you can sense lots of things that you never perceive. And uh, there's a really good video called The Monkey Business Illusion, where you can watch it and I encourage everybody to and, and test your perceptual awareness. But the thing we have to notice and just be so conscious of is our perception is not reality. And there are some philosophers out there who like don't even believe reality exists. We don't need to go down that tunnel, but I think it's helpful to just agree on this sense like, okay, like perception is not reality. So two people can look at the exact same thing and see something different. Um, the last one I want to talk about, as you asked, is sense-making. And sense-making is sort of this like ongoing, retrospective, but also predictive sort of mental map of, you know, what we think is happening in the world. And there's this, you know, great article, actually, there's two in the most recent edition of the Avalanche Review, where folks are encouraging us to like shift away from decision making and go towards this perception, sense making, judgment sort of stuff. And um, so sense making is this ongoing process. So it, it doesn't just stop with like, oh, I noticed a woomph, right? It's like, okay, well, the woomph was the sensation, the perception was, you know, that was effing scary. And then the sense making is like, okay, what triggered that woomph? What caused that woomph? What, what do we expect knowing that we heard a woomph just there? And then let's test out a hypothesis and see where it gets us. So I hope that's not all too heady, but I, I do think these concepts are really integral um, to understanding like how much we suck at <laughs> doing things accurately and efficiently. Man, I don't know about you, but I, I just... I just reach for any shortcut I can take in daily life. You know, sometimes I just slip my shoes on without tying them, you know, I, and, and I think there's so much more um, going on in my brain that is looking for shortcuts. So 
I have heard you say and write about lazy mind, dumb heart. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. So we'll start with the dumb heart part. So, and I know like any physiologist listening is like, um, your heart is not actually where your emotions are. And I know that, but you know, let's suspend disbelief for a second. So your heart is not processing things like our emotions are not processed sort of bits of information. Emotions from like an evolutionary perspective are really helpful bits of information given to us through our felt sense internally that suggest certain things, right? We feel joy as a way of knowing like, oh, I should make more of this happen. And we feel disgust as like a way of knowing like, stop eating this. It's absolutely disgusting and may contain poison. Um, But the emotions are relatively unfiltered. We haven't made sense of them entirely. And once we have the emotion, we have to actually do something with it. But the emotion itself, like not super helpful. Um, Stoke is a big one, right? So it's like, I feel stoke. (laughs) It's like, okay, like, is that great? Like, is that actually useful? Like, does that actually resonate with the current situation? Or is stoked just because you're really excited to be out here, but actually things are terrifying and you shouldn't really feel so excited. So your emotional self isn't really providing you with like smart information. It's just providing you with information that you're gonna maybe, you know, fall sucker to. And then our minds, as we sort of talked about, and you you mentioned with like the shoes, like we are so lazy, you know, we got a like busy lives, we have a lot going on, we got places to go. And, um, and I, you know, I was talking to Scott Savage this weekend, he was like, Oh, I've developed like this, you know, framework that really works for me. And he's like, you just got to do it the same way every time. And I was like, Scott, I don't think there's a single thing in my life I do the same way every time. Like, I don't even brush my teeth the same way every time. And so, A, back to human factor, like untucked chaos over here, like clearly, Scott, not so much untucked chaos, but also like my brain is not super, it's like pretty lazy, right? It wants to look for those shortcuts and and do the easy thing. So how, like personally, how do you combat that? You know, you you obviously are are quite introspective, and and in terms of like thinking about all this stuff, not not all of us are as inclined as you are probably in thinking about all this. So, um, yeah, like what what do you do? What tools do you use to recognize this in yourself, and then you know deal with it in a high stakes environment? Uh, yeah, so I have Apple tags on like everything <laughs> that really helps um, in terms of my tendency to lose stuff. But in terms of out in the mountains, I tend to really enjoy traveling with people ha- who have a better sense of grounding than I do, who are, you know, goal oriented, but also incredibly safe. My partner is very kind of like, He's like the lead weight to my balloon in the best way possible. You know, he is stable and predictable, and he definitely brushes his teeth the same way every time. And uh, when we are traveling out there, he's not scared to say, like, this is above my pay grade, you know, And, and as soon as he says that, I am brought out of my, you know, magical landscape and like, oh, wow, yeah, why are we here? Like, this was a terrible idea. Um, And so I think it's important to balance ourselves out. You know, that's why I said, like, maybe we wouldn't make the best partners for like a big objective day unless it's like total green light situation um, because we don't really balance each other. And so I've sort of come to conclude, you know, um, in my life that there's not a lot I can really change about who I am but there's a lot about I can change about, let's say, like who I surround myself with. And then additionally, like what situations I set myself up for. So, you know, I'm actually a pretty, um, I have low ambitions in the winter for objectives because I know myself to be kind of impulsive and somewhat poor at like, making really good choices in moments when I'm excited. And, 
you know, I hope this isn't terrifying anybody I go in the backcountry with and like no one's going to call me this winter. I, I think they all know. I don't think I'm very good at hiding who I actually am, but um, but I'm just really cautious when I'm at home in my pajamas, knowing that I'm not incredibly cautious when I'm out there in the world. Um, and then I also think I, I put parameters in place. You know, I set hard turnaround times and I honor them. Um, and so I think there are ways that we can put rules up like kind of bumpers. And again, we have to know our human factors first. And usually the best person to tell you about your human factors is somebody you live with or somebody you tour with. And then from there, you know, we can kind of set up a world in which we're more likely to be successful, you know? So for example, hot tip, I sometimes untie my shoes before I take them off. So in the morning when I have to put them back on, they're already untied because otherwise I'm like ruining the backs of all my shoes. So it's like setting up future me for success, knowing that my lazy mind is going to do whatever it can to just get through the day. And you kind of have to know and accept yourself in order to do that, right? Like accept your faults accept, or what you view as your faults maybe and put into action some things to to combat that, eh? Yeah, I, I think that you just said in like 10 words what I said in like 10 minutes and I, I appreciate that wisdom right there and paring that down and and I think that's really what it's all about. And and that's not to say I'm not aware of my strengths. You know, I think there's a lot of things I do really well. And I think my partners would identify those also. But I do think it's really important for us to be honest with ourselves. And, you know, I can picture a world in which during a rec one, we encourage some of that introspection and we encourage some of that internal research, if you will. Um, and definitely at the pro level, like every guide should really know what they're about. And I think when it comes to forecasters, I bet, you know, if you sat down with your partners and asked them like, how do I do this? I bet they'd, they'd know a lot. They'd have a lot of insight for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think some of this comes along with, with age and maturity, you know, and, and hopefully bringing these ideas to the forefront of, of the community will encourage, you know, a younger generation to, to embed this in their practice and and I think by and large, I don't know what your experience has been like at your clinic, but that generation is much more used to this language and talking about this than some of the older folks within our community. Um, like, what's your experience been with that? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that there's like mental health has become really cool. Mental awareness has become really trendy uh, so much so that many therapists like can't keep up, you know, like we have so many people wanting mm -hmm. to come do insight oriented work, which is awesome. I think um, my my mountaineering partners, I, I have tended to have a number of, you know, 55 to 70 year old male hiking and mountaineering partners in my life, which has been awesome. They've been great mentors and really self-aware folks. I think if you, maybe there's sort of like both ends of the spectrum. So the young folks have sort of a culture of, of uh, insight and awareness. And then I think the, you know, more seasoned folks, tend to have developed that over time if they've lasted long enough in the game. And I think if if you talk to anybody in that range, they sort of know what's up. Um, you know, the young folks might have more like informed language, right? Um, but these these seasoned folks probably know themselves pretty darn well too. So I suspect you are you and I are kind of in the middle of that, you know, pathway and um, we're getting there. Yeah. No doubt. So Sarah, I think it was last season, um, there was this great little blurb in the tar that was Mad Libs, and, and you came up with that. And I was hoping you could just describe that to us as maybe a tool to kind of open a discussion with your ski touring partners or your forecasting team or your guiding operation team. Yeah, Mad Libs uh, was like my most photographed slide at, at some of the saws that I presented at. And I was like, oh, people are kind of liking this. I mean, I don't know if they ever open that photograph again on their phone. But um, 
what I realized as I was starting to talk to folks was that we don't really teach people in elementary school really anything about like emotions or insight or self-awareness or communication. And I think maybe some kids are starting to get that now, but our generation definitely did not learn that. And so I didn't think it was fair to like stand up there and say like, you have to know yourself and then like walk away because how do we do that? Like, how do we know ourselves? And so I started thinking about like, what are the important aspects to understand about yourself? Well, risk seems pretty important to understand. And um, from the financial world, we know a lot about how to ascertain risk and how to think about risk as an individual sort of characteristic. Um, people you know, there's an argument out there about whether or not risk tolerance is even a thing, but I do think our approach to risk is a thing. And I think communication is really important. I think it's really important to understand how we're all motivated. And so I, you know, I put together this little Mad Libs. It's very short. There's just four blanks as a way to invite us to do a little introspection and then to do that with our partners, you know, sitting around the lodge at night or uh, over a beer after the day. And I think it could be a helpful tool to just spark those conversations, even if we don't actually get to the thing. You know, one of the things that I've learned over the years that is so important to understand about your partners is that motivation piece. And you and I both said it kind of naturally. Like you said, I'm I'm really motivated by objectives. And I don't think a group needs to share motivation. I think it's okay for everyone to have a different motivation. But at this point in time, I really like to know my partner's motivations. Because if we have same or different or, you know, opposing or whatever, like, A, it helps me decide, like, is this a great partner for me? But also, it's a way to understand what's going to make it hard for this person to turn around or to give up or to head back to the car or what's going to make it hard for me because, you know, I might be more inclined. So I call myself like an early bailer. Like I'll bail before the trip pretty easily, like if things don't feel right. But once I'm out there, it's very hard for me to bail. And I'm motivated by sitting on top of things and preferably eating dessert with friends up there. And so if my friends can understand that about me, it's going to help them encourage me in different ways. I, I learned this idea of the bail cake from Sophia Schwartz at Wysaw that you keep all the ingredients on hand so that if you have to turn back for whatever reason, you just go home and bake a cake. And I was like, oh, I can get behind that, you know? And so figuring out how to play with our motivations feels really important. And so this was just a tool I developed to start those conversations and to build in just a way to get insight. Uh, I think it's unfair for us to ask people to do work without, you know, supports in place. So here's a support for everybody. Right on. That's great. And we'll, we'll share that in the show notes there. And if you haven't checked it out, check it out and, and try and try and bring that into your touring partner community and and start those conversations. Uh, this is super important. Um, but speaking of cake, I've I've heard that you like to have nice treats at the top of mountain summits or at the top of your ski run. Um, this was a listener question, actually. Uh, what's your favorite treat on the top of a hill? Man, that's a great question. I've had some great ones. Summertime, it would definitely be like a strawberry or berry shortcake of some kind. I've been known to carry like whipped cream, you know, fresh made whipped cream in a set, second, you know, container and kind of make the whole thing up there. Um, in the winter, I once carried a whole s'mores cake, which was pretty excessive. Um, but I, I really actually these days am, am drawn by just like a really good cookie, like a really excellent buttery cookie. They're easy to eat with your mittens still on. My hands are always cold. So it's just like this simple, delightful reward. And if you bring like two or three and, you know, you get one on each lap or whatever, it's like can't really be beat. And maybe I'll give you my favorite cookie recipe to share in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, perfect. 
I was I was hoping maybe I could change some of my motivations so that maybe we can go ski touring together because that sounds pretty tasty. I'm sure we can work it out. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as we talked about earlier, and you state in your last year's article about sense sense and decision making, um, you know, and this is borrowed borrowed from Kahneman here, but knowing you have biases is not enough to help you overcome them. You may accept that you have the biases, but you cannot eliminate them in yourself. And so let's kind of dive into, and you've, you've been kind of meandering towards this, but let's talk about some other tools and strategies to help us overcome, overcome these biases and, and traps within our brain. Oh, man, I, I was sort of hoping that you had some ideas. <laughs> this is a tough one. I'm just kidding. I have a few ideas, but I think that this is a, it's the toughest question of all, you know? And I think if, again, if if we knew something that worked, everyone would know it, right? But I think really it comes back to like who we surround ourselves with and who we have available to us to check in. Because while we're pretty bad at seeing these in ourselves, at least in the moment. There's some research to suggest we're actually okay at seeing them in other people. And so if, you know, if I know that commitment is sort of your trap and you really fall for it all the time, and I also know confirmation bias is your thing, well, I might challenge you in ways, and I might get creative in those ways that really push you to shift out of that. So you know, we're kind of linking this all together now. Now we're really linking turns, but it's like, all right, so we did the Mad Libs. We have, you know, first we have our human factor awareness of ourselves. Now we did the Mad Libs. We shared that, you know, together. I know yours, you know mine. And then we're out there and I'm like, oh, there he goes. Confirmation bias all over the place. You know, I might take on the role of devil's advocate and really push you. And I might point out some stuff that you didn't see. And in some ways, like to me, that's kind of fun. Like that's like a challenge, you know, and it's like, all right, I got to convince this guy that, you know, he's wrong. Like, how do I do that? And I'm not just going to do it by telling you you're wrong. I'm going to have to do it with some data. I'm going to have to show you some stuff. And, um, and I think that's a beautiful, the devil's advocate in particular is like this great way to really strive to create good data about our environment. And, you know, there are a few ways that we can combat that. Like one is to write everything down, like open up your notes app or have a, you know, pen and paper and really write down what you're seeing. Um, we know that we're actually pretty terrible at remembering things too. And so if you're out there on the skin track and you're having a great day and you notice something pretty early on, and now you're just, you know, you're in a different perspective and you can't quite see what you're looking at from down below, you might not even register that when it comes time to having that conversation. I said this this weekend at Wysaw and it got a lot of hoots from the female identifying members of the audience, but I do think there's something about traveling in a group of women where we're just constantly talking like the whole way. And we're talking about our feelings and we're checking in and we stop for a snack and how's everybody feeling and, oh, okay, how's that thing you've been dealing with and all of that stuff. And it's really helpful because we get to the top where it's windy and cold and I actually know how everybody's doing already. So we don't have to have this long conversation. And um, so being with a group that you can blurt your, your vibes out to, you know, that if your gut is telling you no, like you can say that. I really suggest you reconsider if you're out with people you don't feel like you can speak your truth to. Um, and then go out with people who are going to call you on your stuff, you know, like I like going out with people who can zip up all my coats around my neck so that I'm not that untucked chaos. But I also like going out with people who can say like, hey, Sarah, I think we should pause here at the saddle and, and really talk about our timing and whether or not it makes sense to keep going. Um, I think that can be really helpful. Do you ever use a like a pre-mortem sometimes when I'm standing at the top of a slope or or perhaps just on the skin track up? I, I think about how the accident report would read if if I get things wrong, right? It seems like that can be a useful tool to kind of put us in check a little bit and bring us back down to earth. Yeah, I love that. I think the pre-mortem 
I'll get just a little sciency for like a very short amount of time. But, you know, if we have two parts of our brain, one is like the feeling part and one is the thinking part. When our feeling part is activated, which it usually is when we're standing at the top of something, it's usually in the direction of stoke and excitement or fear and apprehension. And in either case, what we know is actually our brain can't really multitask. We can kind of only do one thing at a time in our brains, even though we really think we're great at multitasking. Uh, and so we, we're fully in our stoke. We are fully in our fear. And by engaging our thinking parts of our brain, by doing like a pre-mortem, uh, you're sort of shifting yourself out of it. And you can do that a number of different ways too. Like I teach people like just name every color you can see. Like it's a great way to like engage the thinking parts of your brain. Uh, count backwards from 100 by 7. Some people hate that one. Others love it. Anything we can do to engage those parts of our brain that are useful to us uh, is helpful. And then adding in this pre-mortem, this future casting in a way that shifts us out of our confirmation bias and and offers a different path out of the sense-making. So if sense-making, we sort of are future casting, we're predicting things are going to be awesome, the powder is going to be great, and we're going to have an awesome time. But then our brain gives us this idea of like, you know, avalanche educator triggers slide on north facing, you know, 38 degree slope, despite high danger with, you know, wind slabs on the north facing sides, you're like, that would be so embarrassing. And that's just this added level of like, all right, let's, you know, let's get out of the stoke and let's get into the thought. Um, yeah, I think that's a really great strategy. Yeah, I love that. I, 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 I oftentimes, you know, in conjunction with a pre-mortem, I just try and ask myself and my partners, what are we missing here? You know, which, which kind of like harkens back to like data points and, and maybe more objective data, um, as opposed to subjective. But, but I think there's room to bring in that, those subjective human factors into that conversation of what are we missing? And, and honestly, like I, when I asked that question to myself, um, I'm realizing now that in the past I, I wouldn't, consider the human factors. It was just snowpack weather terrain and what I'm missing. And, and I think that's something that I'm going to try and integrate into my practice in the backcountry here moving forward. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. Yeah. My whole mission is like, if I can help one person make like a better choice, like that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah, you mentioned that you're, you're just back from Saw. You presented at Saw. I was curious kind of what you took away from Wysaw and, and some things that sparked interest in your mind. Yeah, Wysaw was a great event. And I think all the videos are going to be able to be shown on their website at some point here. Um, uh, there were two kind of things that really stuck in my craw. One was from uh, Ian McCammon and, and Zach Miller, kind of separate talks, but really kind of put things together about slope angle. And I, I think... You know, I remember so clearly from my Rec 1 course many years ago, terrain is the answer. Terrain is the answer. You know, it was kind of like this joke by the end, like the teacher would say something, and we'd be like, terrain is the answer. That's how you manage everything. And what Ian showed in his really neat research and what Zach showed in very different research is that slope angle is a very hard to discern. So even experts using inclinometers are getting it wrong most of the time. Like maybe we're within eight degrees and eight degrees can matter a lot. Difference between 30 degrees and 38 degrees is pretty significant. Um, and then additionally, that the way that the snow uh, builds in different parts of a uniform slope can vary the slope angle. And um, you know, it doesn't take much to, it doesn't take a huge area to trigger a slide that can propagate pretty far. And so it really shifted my thinking about terrain as the answer, because we are not overlaying perception if we're just thinking about terrain as this factual construct we do not understand terrain if it has not been filtered through our perception. And because of that, we need to really consider like how tightly we hold to that 
truth, so to speak. Um, so that really stuck with me. And, you know, Ian's research was, in his words, pretty basic. It was kind of this um, starting kit for thinking about inclinometer use and terrain or slope angle measurement, but it was hugely transformative to my thinking. I actually carried an inclinometer in my pocket all last winter and was using that and my phone to test my estimates of slope angle because I think that's actually what we often do is we kind of look at it. It's like, that doesn't look too steep. And um, I learned that I'm pretty bad at it. And then I learned from Ian that actually we're all pretty bad at it. And I was like, oh, this is really helpful to know. So that was a really helpful takeaway. And I encourage everybody to go watch Ian's talk in particular. And he gives us like a homework assignment, a little science project that you can do at home to check your inclinometer itself and then check your usage of it. And uh, I think it's great. And I think we need to continue researching even something that I think we all thought was agreed upon. <laughs> like we all thought like the slope is either this or it's this. And it's like, whoa, we don't know. Our, our brains want to kind of grasp to that tangible thing. Like, and I, I appreciate Mark Staples and Russ Costa's um, recent article in TARD that, that's talking about like, well, maybe we should just say, is it over 30 or is it under 30, right? Like try and simplify that. Maybe we're looking for shortcuts in our brain, but like that kind of makes things a little bit clearer in my head um, as we know that we're pretty bad at this, right? Yeah. And again, right, these are the bumpers, you know, and there are so many great minds working on this problem out there in the world. And that is such a beautiful idea. You know, it's like, if you're concerned, like, give yourself a wide margin, and let's not split hairs when those hairs are our lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other talks or topics at Wise We were talking about kind of the motorized the motorized community a little bit before we started recording, but um, anything around that? Yeah, so um, the second half of the day on Sunday was really devoted to thinking about the motorized um, community, which interestingly was really underrepresented at Wysaw, and, and we could probably spend all day thinking through that dilemma. But Gabrielle hosted this beautiful panel of all motorized users, some of whom are actually also um, human-powered users and have dilemmas on powder days about which, <laughs> which device they want to use that day. And then um, Ethan Davis gave a really moving and powerful presentation about some of the fatalities that have occurred in Idaho in this last year. And I think we are really missing the mark and when I say we, I mean the greater avalanche community. When it comes to motorized users, they're not included in our efforts. They're not um, often even referenced. You know, we we tend to say like skier. Sometimes we even forget to say rider. Uh, you know, they're not pictured in logos. They're not, you know, pictured in slideshows. Um and we don't even really understand them, you know, as, as somebody who rides a snowmobile very poorly, um, I have a long way to go even before understanding my snow machine, let alone like this entire community that has been largely excluded from our research, from our, you know, theories, from all of it. And uh, Ethan and I, I think, sort of just put our you know, geeky minds together at the end of the day. And we were like, we can do better. And I think there's a lot of room to grow. And I, I think it doesn't just start with skiers sitting in a room trying to figure out how we get snowmobilers to join us in the room. It, it takes, you know, forecasters and researchers and professionals going out to snow bikers and saying, what's this like for you? How do you make decisions? Like, how are you informed? How do you communicate with your, you know, group? Uh, we're not seeing observations from you. Where are you sharing those observations? I think we've got this structure in place and we sort of are like, cool, this structure works for everybody. I don't understand why these people aren't in the room. And it's like, well, clearly the structure isn't working for everyone. And so, you know, there's there's a lot more we can talk about in terms of like the discord between the two user groups. And, you know, I have my own feelings on that and everybody does. 
But at the end of the day, like this is about lives and safety. And, you know, these two 17 year old boys in Idaho, like that's, that's beyond like some disagreement about whether we want brappers, you know, out where we're skiing. Like this is about safety and about heartbreak. And it was powerful to pull that together for everyone and leave us sort of thinking about how we can do this better. And in some ways, the research, the numbers are suggesting that what we're doing in many communities is working. We have way more users in the backcountry than we used to, particularly skiers and snowboarders, but also snowshoers and snow bikers. And while fatalities have not tracked in proportion to that growth, uh, 11 fatalities in Idaho in a year, most of whom were motorized users, that's unacceptable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed hearing about Ethan's work and, and kind of what I think of in my head is kind of the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> in Idaho where, you know, they're surrounding avalanche forecast centers and um, this area in, in Eastern Idaho is kind of missed by some of these forecast centers. And so, um, yeah, I think that's some great work that he's done. And ho- and hopefully I'll put in the show notes the link to Wysaw and, and you can these listeners can watch all of those presentations. Sorry, if I may, it's also a good plug to support your local avalanche center if you don't already, because these organizations, while they're doing good work and they serve us well, there's a lot of growth for all of them. You know, where I live is a huge forecast zone. It's actually several zones. And um, many places, including eastern Idaho, are, you know, are in that boat too. And so for us to realize that that work is really tireless, I mean, these guys are waking up at like 3, 4 a.m. all winter long and trying to give us this information that we depend on and yet imagine what it's like to be in an area where you don't even get that forecast and or if you do it's like for an adjacent area and so you're doing your own forecasting that's a lot of work yep it's a lot of inputs to the brain right yeah which is so great as we've talked about (laughs) so reliable Sarah, talk a little bit about the work that you do with She Jumps. For those that don't know She Jumps, maybe just describe the organization a bit. Yeah, so we are a nonprofit that aims to get more girls, women, female identifying individuals into the outdoors. Um, as I said, you know, my research was focused on how ho- rock climbing could influence hope and courage in women participants in rock climbing courses. And so I've always been keen on, you know, thinking like, man, the outdoors really is good medicine. I think any of us who have been out in the outdoors, which is probably everybody listening other than maybe my mom, just kidding, she's been outside too. We understand like the nature of this thing and how good it is for us. And additionally, I think we understand that, you know, it builds empowerment, it builds community, it teaches us lessons that we can then bring back into the, you know, boardrooms and classrooms and our families. We become stronger out there, we become stronger inside. And so it's been a real passion for me for a long time and getting involved with She Jumps um, has just sort of been the ultimate expression of that. I'm currently the board chair, so I get to engage in this leadership role within this organization that's so empowering and believes in everyone. And I show up for every board meeting just in awe of the people surrounding me. I'm like, everybody is so smart and creative and energized. And um, one thing I'd love to add, kind of pulling everything together, which I'm like, man, this is like the penultimate is uh, in late March, early April, a close colleague and I will be facilitating what we're calling Ski Suite. We're not trying to exclude snowboarders, just to be clear, but it's for any like C-suite, you know, CEOs, CFOs, managers, uh, executive directors, anybody who has a leadership role in their community or in their organization to do a backcountry trip uh, into um, Valker Lodge for seven days where we have some amazing female guides who are going to take us touring. And then Galen, my 
co-facilitator and I are going to do some of the insight introspective work and help folks really build up and figure out like what gets in the way of them being their best leadership self. And so, you know, it's like, there's no ceiling outside, right? There's no glass ceiling when you're in the outdoors. It's just like sky's the limit. And, uh, I'm pretty grateful for what She Jumps has brought out in me, and I'm really excited to help bring that out in others. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah, where where can people find out a little bit more about that and, and uh, sign up for your trip? Yeah, we just launched it this week, and it's shejumps.org. Um, and there's all sorts of other stuff that's happening probably near you, wherever you are. Mm-hmm. So it's cool. It's really cool. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for swinging by the show today and bringing your insight and experience and wisdom to the community. I appreciate you and I appreciate the work that's that you're you're doing out there. It's important, very important. I echo everything you just said towards me, towards you because you are doing such awesome work bringing these great minds in to have these depth conversations where we really get to hear and learn and understand on a different level and you do a really nice job of that so thanks for letting me be a small part of it oh thanks sarah i look forward to getting that cookie recipe we'll chat soon all right thanks a lot so i i realized when editing this episode that i kind of kept asking Sarah the same question throughout the interview. So what are the tools to help us work beyond recognizing some of the human factors that are at play? We need concrete tools to be able to put some of these concepts into action. I think she laid out some great tools to start these conversations with your backcountry partners, but we want to hear more from you all. What are your strategies to be more self-aware? How do you communicate the hard truths to your partner about their blind spots? And how are avalanche educators tackling this subject in courses? Hit us up at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com. Let's keep the conversation rolling. Music on today's episode was written and performed by our buddy Gravy. Thanks, Gravy. You can find more of his music at gravytunes.bandcamp.com. Our artwork was provided by Mike T. You demand T. If you need a logo or artwork for a project, hit up Mike. You won't be disappointed. Check out more of his work at MikeT.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend about it and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Come on, I know it's been on your to-do list for a while, so why not just do it now? It's been a little quiet over there in the review corner for quite some time. Give us a follow on Instagram to stay up to date on the release of new episodes and see some fun pics of our guests we are at the avalanche hour our next episode will be coming in hot on wednesday november 1st as don baker and i sit down with Eric sharp president of the canadian avalanche association until then stay tuned stay safe and always have fun